Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Because I think most of the music that's out right now is pretty boring and pretty safe and pretty um, prepackaged and corporate and lifeless. I think spirit of rock and roll is dead for the most part, and it's been nicely sold and packaged and um, put into everybody's home via MTV, and it's a safe commodity now, and there's very few bands challenging anything and doing anything different. It's just a matter of making music that you think is good, you know, and then that's that. And when the label comes at you, this is my music, you know, sometimes there's people that with some integrity that might have points to raise, you know, that you don't think of, and that makes sense. But to say, hey, uh, grunge is in fashion, so why don't you incorporate, you know, that's, that's ridiculous to even consider that kind of shit. They're the people that make more money than you do when you sell a record. Their job is to figure out how to get people to buy it, you know, but I wouldn't compromise the actual music to fit into somebody's idea of what they think is going on. Trent Reznor, in his own words, plus a few old dark secrets that he'd rather not talk about. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. And I think with MTV, there's a danger now where if the god of MTV, whoever that is, points their finger at you and says, you're the next big thing, you are the next big thing. And they dictate to people what taste is and they dictate what fashion is. And for the most part, people foolishly listen to them and believe it and buy it, and then they are the big thing. But when MTV then says, okay, we're done with you, you have to have something to stand on other than hype. And then that same thing, I think, happens like with the British press. They'll pick a band, they'll hype the shit out of them for six months, and then they discard them, and if that band isn't really that great, they can't go anywhere from them. Let's hear for Nine Inch Nails! Woo! This is good! All right, let's be honest. There are bands out there that are harder and faster and noisier than Nine Inch Nails, but there is no one, no one, who can combine sound, image, rage, and technology better than Trent Reznor. I mean, name another industrial bass band that has sold tens of millions of records. Most new rock fans can recite Trent's basic history by heart. Raised in Pennsylvania, a struggling musician in Cleveland, a legal battle with his first record label, the massive success of the second album, and the long wait for the third record. But the fact that you're listening to this program says that you want to know more than just that. You want some deep background on Nine Inch Nails, and the deeper, the better. This is why this program will focus almost entirely on the early, early years of Nine Inch Nails. And we're talking about the weird, murky period before the release of The Downward Spiral. But Trent tends to be very secretive. He and his managers go to great lengths to control every aspect of Trent's image. And that's why a lot of detective work had to be employed for this program. But you know what they say, where there's a will, there's a way. Trent Reznor is from a tiny Pennsylvania town called Mercer. His family descended from the same people who established a heating company. If you're ever in a big warehouse and you see one of those giant gas-fired heaters hanging from the ceiling, check to see who makes it. If it says Reznor Heaters, then that's the company related to Trent's family that was founded two generations ago. His mom, Nancy, and his dad, Michael, were going out in high school when Nancy got pregnant. And in Mercer, that meant that you had to get married right away. In other words, Trent Reznor was a high school dating accident back in 1964. 
He was born May 17, 1965. After Trent's sister was born in 1971, Michael and Nancy split up, forcing Trent to go live with Nancy's parents. Piano lessons started at age five. He learned to play the tuba and the saxophone in the school band, and he was fascinated by Supertramp, Pink Floyd, and anything that had to do with the Antichrist. Trent's true inspiration for becoming a musician was, believe it or not, the Human League. Punk bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Ramones were cool and everything, but the synthesizers and drum machines of the Human League and OMD and Depeche Mode, now that was really cool. For a while, Trent thought he might get a job working for a company that made synthesizers, but in the end, he just moved to Cleveland where he got a job in a music store that sold a lot of keyboards, and that was pretty sweet. You know, a job selling synthesizers, which meant that Trent got to play with the latest gear as soon as it came in. By 1983, Trent would be about 18 by then, he was playing keyboards in a band called Option 30. And here's something pretty weird. It's a radio interview with Option 30. Check it out. You guys like to have yourselves known uh, primarily as a, a new wave band, right? Right. And you do a lot of different variety of stuff, you know, range, ranging from reggae and what other kind of songs? Well, right now we're kind to trying to see what direction we're going to write the material in. We don't want to bear too heavily towards synth pop. It's kind of burning itself out. Yeah. We don't want to um, be too police-ish, which um, some of our writing ends up being like. very popular right now. Right? Yeah. Um, it's pretty much up in the air. We're getting together and playing a lot more, and there's we'd like to be an all-original band soon. But the problem with an area like Edinburgh or Meadville, which is where we play a lot, is that uh, it's very conservative. And people just don't want to go out and hear 40 songs they've never heard before. They want to hear Loverboy and Sammy Hagar. Which we don't do. <laughs> at even, at, even at gunpoint. <laughs> uh, not only do, does the band play uh, originals, they also play all sorts of uh, songs from other artists. And which would you rather be playing? Well, there's no question we'd rather be an all-original band eventually, and I think that's where the money's at. Todd settled down. <laughs> but um, just for purposes of playing, we do do a lot of cover songs. Um, we try to orient them to new music songs. And, yeah, okay, we sell out, okay? But it's not easy being in a band. Um, in fact, it's, it's pretty lonely. It's a matter of business, though. I, I mean, you attract a crowd... <laughs> And, uh, you know, you have to play songs that people can identify with. Well, it's, it's especially hard to work, like we said earlier, in this area without playing other people's songs, right? Right. And uh, another song that you guys play is uh, De Commissar, which is a pretty familiar one everybody likes to dance to. Yeah, this is our version. In fact, this was another 20 minutes before we came out. We we recorded this yesterday. No, we recorded in the car on the way out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we, all four of you, right? We, a washboard and a harmonica. <laughs> it's kind of a new arrangement, but I think you'll recognize it. <laughs> it's kind of like Appalachian music, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, to Commissar, and this is Option 30's rendition. Option 30, featuring an 18-year-old Trent Reznor on vocals and recording from sometime in 1983. Over the next few years, Trent played in a parade of bands. First of all, there was The Innocent, 
1985, they released an album called Living in the Street. Trent was just the keyboard player. He didn't sing, nor did he write anything for The Innocent. Nevertheless, this band remains something of an embarrassment for Trent. Legend has it that once he hit it big, Trent sent his sister out to buy up and destroy all remaining copies of Living in the Street. If this is true, she missed one. What you're about to hear is even more rare than the Option 30 stuff. Here's The Innocent with 19-year-old Trent Reznor on keyboards with the title track of Living in the Street from 1985. Ultra-rare, pre-Nine Inch Nails music featuring Trent Reznor on keyboards. The Innocent, with the title track of Living in the Street. After The Innocent came a band called The Urge. Trent then jumped to a band called Exotic Birds, who released an EP entitled Oiseau. That seems to be lost to history, but I'm still looking. The Exotic Birds were also cast in a 1987 Michael J. Fox movie called Light of Day. Trent and the band are heard in the background, playing a cover of a Buddy Holly song called True Love Ways. Most of the performance is obscured by dialogue, so you don't really get a chance to hear it, and no, the song did not make the official soundtrack. By this time, late 87, early 1988, Trent had found work in Cleveland in a recording studio called The Right Track. He did everything from gather up mic cables to clean the toilets. But when everybody went home for the night, Trent had the whole studio to himself. Working mostly between 3 and 8 in the morning, Trent slowly cobbled together what would become the first Nine Inch Nails album. Unfortunately, some of this first material wasn't very good at all. This, believe it or not, is what Nine Inch Nails used to sound like. Well, I think I'm gonna push it as far as it will go. Give in to desire. Only you will. Trent Reznor and a long forgotten early stab at making Nine Inch Nails work. However, Trent was beginning to move beyond his favorite techno-pop bands and into something a little more sinister and a lot harder. He found that he really liked the rage and fury of bands like Ministry and Front 242 and Canada's Skinny Puppy. In fact, the very first song written in this new style was Down In It. That was the first song I'd ever written. And when I sat down, I took a very experimental approach to it. And the original version I did was about half speed of the one on the record. And it was a total ripoff of Dig It by Skinny Puppy. I'll admit that right now. <laughs> Lyrically, I was just experimenting with just kind of a train of thought, writing down whatever I thought. And all it was was a kind of, I hate to say what I'm talking about, but I'll do it now since I'm so old. I just like to think about it now. It was just this feeling of like, at an earlier stage in my life, I thought I had my act together. I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I thought I, I, thought I had pride in myself. And as I gotten older and realized that certain things don't work out the way you'd hope they would at a certain stage, a lot of the illusions that you've been led to believe growing up in a fairly sheltered environment, just, I don't know, it's kind of coming of age, realizing that, you know, things might not work out sort of thing, feeling. That's kind of the bridge of the song. With that in mind, here's an early, early version of Down In It. I was up above it.
Trent Reznor as Nine Inch Nails from early 1988. All right, so where did this name come from? Well, nowhere, really. It doesn't mean anything special, despite any rumors that you may have heard. Trent was just doodling with names, and Nine Inch Nails was something he came up with. Sounded pretty cool, so he just kept it. A three-song demo was sent out to a variety of record labels, and the only real response came from a Chicago company called TV Tunes. This was a label that, up until that time, specialized in releasing compilations of old TV theme songs. If, for example, you absolutely needed to own the opening theme from Gilligan's Island, you'd pick up one of TV Tunes' collections. Company president Steve Gottlieb knew that the market for this kind of thing was only so big, so he changed the name of the label to TVT and started looking for bands. One of his first was Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. And even though Trent was really excited about the prospects of a new record deal, the TV tune situation would soon turn into a nightmare. More after this. After signing to TVT, Trent was sent to England to work on a debut album. He had all this material, but as we've heard, some of it was pretty, well, lightweight. Trent knew that he wanted all of his music to be much more intense, but he lacked the studio experience to really make it happen. That's why he used four different producers who all showed him how to toughen up his sound. For example, take the song called Sanctified. In the very beginning, the song sounded like Angry Lover Boy, complete with the cheesy 80s-style pitch blend flourishes on the keyboard, and the U2-type guitars. Got that? Well, compare what you just heard with the finished version. Thanks to producer John Fryer, Sanctified turned into something much more sophisticated and much more sinister. Sanctified from Pretty Hate Machine, the first Nine Inch Nails album. Trent is obviously singing about a woman in a relationship, but but who? Well, maybe it's an ex-girlfriend named Patty. You see, just before Trent left for England, he and Patty had some kind of, I don't know, reconnection. But then he found out that Patty had met someone else, gotten pregnant, and was getting married. So a lot of anguish and heartbreak that we hear in that song is completely genuine. Legend has it that the song was also inspired by a relationship with a cocaine pipe. Another important piece of this puzzle was Chris Vrenna, an old friend from Erie, Pennsylvania. Chris was very good at finding and then isolating samples. For example, if you go through that first album, you'll hear samples from Jane's Addiction, Public Enemy, This Mortal Coil, and many others. Most, however, are totally unrecognizable because they have been modified and mutilated by computers. Not only did the sounds of the songs change while that first album was being recorded, so did some of the titles. A track called Twist was eventually renamed Ring Finger. And in the beginning, this song was simply known as You Know Who You Are. Now it started with this rhythm track. Now this has potential, but what do you do with this? Well, the answer seems to be you build on top of it, piece by piece, keeping what worked and throwing out what didn't.
Pretty Hate Machine was released on November 29, 1989. And that's when things started to get very strange. I just did a record that um, was with Pretty Hate Machine, which was where I was at the time, musically. It probably reflected the type of music that I was influenced by, which was like the Wax Tracks label scene in America a lot, and um, harder-edged synth electronic music. The mainstream American music at that time was guitar rock, just as it is now, you know. And when we put that record out, it was, you know, the label I put it out on hated it. MTV wouldn't play it. Commercial radio said no. Alternative radio, which was just kind of starting up, said no. No interest whatsoever. So we just started touring and opening for a lot of bands. We opened for Jesus and Mary Chain and Peter Murphy and anybody that wouldn't let us open for them, really. A lot of what went into Pretty Hate Machine was when I started, these are the first songs I'd ever written. And I didn't know what Nine Inch Nails was about. And when it's one person at a computer, there's a pretty big palette of sounds and you know, identities you can assume. And it wasn't really based on, can I play the guitar? Because I can simulate that through the computer. So what I did was, after some experimenting and failing on a few different things, realized that what would make the biggest impression, I thought, was to make a very honest thing. So the only thing I could speak about with any authority was my own personal experience and tried to relate situations I'd been in or feelings I'd thought or dissatisfactions with relationships or religion or the government of the country I live in or whatever it is and disguise that so it's not in a preaching way because I have no nothing to preach to anybody about except this is how I feel. If you can relate to that, great. I, I don't consider us a political band on any level. It's not that. It was an honest thing. Now, the backlash of that is sometimes you have to deal with people knowing about you in a way that you don't really want everyone to know about. So, Remember how he said that Trent Reznor would come to regret that deal he signed with TVT Records? That whole mess is next. There was a time in the 1990s when it was almost impossible to find a copy of Pretty Hate Machine anywhere, in any record store. That's because there was a huge legal battle going on between Trent and his label, TVT. When Steve Gottlieb, the president of TVT, signed Nine Inch Nails in the first place, he thought he was getting an edgier Depeche Mode. He was not prepared for the sound and the fury of Pretty Hate Machine. Gottlieb told Trent that the album was an abortion. That's a quote. You took some perfectly good pop songs and you made them too heavy, he screamed. Gottlieb went on to predict that the album would sell no more than 20,000 copies. Well, he was wrong. Over the next 14 months, more than 150,000 copies were sold. A fairly modest amount, to be sure, but when you consider how little support Trent got from TVT and how much support he got through word of mouth, that's actually pretty impressive. In the spring of 1990, Trent went on the road as the opener for Peter Murphy, and one of the songs in the Nine Inch Nails set list at that time was this cover of an old song by Queen. Trent wasn't happy with the way he was being treated by TVT, so by the end of 1990, he had declared that he wanted out of his contract. However, Steve Gottlieb's response was, over my dead body. It was an impasse that would last for almost two years. Because of the nature of Trent's contract, he was prohibited from doing almost anything. 
The only thing that kept Nine Inch Nails alive was the offer to play on the first Lollapalooza tour in the summer of 1991. The $12,000 Nine Inch Nails was paid for each gig went a long way towards paying for lawyers, not to mention for things like food and, and rent. Trent also attempted to moonlight, working secretly with a few other industrial bands. One of the groups was Ministry, actually a ministry side project called 1000 Homo DJs. They recorded a single, a cover of a Black Sabbath song called Supernaut with Trent on vocals. But when TVT found out, they demanded that Trent's voice be removed from the recording or there would be legal hell to pay. So they did, and Al Jorgensen had to re-sing the song by himself. Here, however, is a quick sample of the original version, the band version of Supernaut with Trent Reznor's original vocals. The thing that got bad to kind of justify my bitching was, was realizing that, you know, Nine Inch Nails got bigger than I ever dreamed it would get. I got maybe 10 years, you know, it would like, be like the cure someday. And in the fifth or sixth album, people start to hear about it. As good as you could feel about that, I also knew that the ship was going down because the label, they hated the record I gave them. They put it out, sold a shitload of records. And I thought, maybe I can deal with small budgets. I can deal with, you know, being on an independent label. But don't. I mean, let me do what I want to do. I thought maybe when I proved them wrong, it would let me do that, but it turned into a, well, now you sold a million records, we're going to sell five million on the next one. We're going to make sure you got radio-friendly songs. It was like, what? You know what I mean? Because it would have been the end. I'd rather Nine Inch Nails just vanish with some amount of coolness than here we are now, you know, in a folk commercial, you know, rapping. They rescued us from TVT. It was the lesser of several evils. And at the time, my vision of Interscope was Marky Mark. It's like, Christ, one TVT to another. Again, I can't say how, how cool they've been in the whole situation. So I'm, I'm very happy with that. And it's nice to have a label president that was a producer himself and knows how to make a record and knows how you can get stuck and knows how things you know, don't always go as planned. I'm convinced there are good people somewhere, you know, I would think Daniel Miller is probably a good, um, and there's there's people at Sire, you know, um, that are cool record company people that seem to have some knowledge of what's going on and seem to be in it because they like music, not because you know how much money I can make if I, you know, I mean, it's, it's they like music, you know, which is why I make music. It was to make money, you know, I'd be further ahead working at 7-Eleven, you know, up until last year, you know. I mean, with Broken, I wanted to, uh, I was really frustrated when we were at the pinnacle of the battle between record labels and I was at a point where I, I was freaked out because of success for one because we'd gotten bigger than I felt comfortable being at the time. I was also faced with the prospect of it all being over because I couldn't put make music anymore because of this f***ing record label that I was on and I was having some personal crises at the same time so it all got focused into that little EP of hate and I wanted to make something that was aggressive, more aggressive than what I'd done in the past. I'd also discovered what guitar sounded like and real drums and things like that because I'd never really had access to them. I mean, to me, drum was a button on a machine. But after touring for a couple of years with real drummers, I understood, wow, it doesn't sound like that button and I wanted to incorporate some of those sounds. And I'd gotten better at playing guitar just from doing it. I think I also wanted to completely commercially destroy Nine Inch Nails. So I made that record and I wanted it to sound the way it did. 
And then, of course, we went to Grammy for it. <laughs> From that, though, I also saw where I was boxing myself into a corner that I see other bands do. And um, I'm not concerned about being the hardest, meanest, snarliest band in the world. The Broken EP, Halo 5 in the Nine Inch Nails catalog, released September 16th, 1992. It debuted at number 7 on the album charts and went platinum at supersonic speed. It even won a Grammy for Best Metal Performance. Trent felt completely vindicated, and if you listen very closely to the 30-second mark of track 98 on this CD, a track called Physical, you'll hear Trent whisper in the background, Eat your heart out, Steve. It's there, but you'll need headphones to hear it properly. Two years after Broken came out, the downward spiral. And from that point, Trent Reznor has really never looked back. The tours, the remixing projects, the producing gigs, the success of his Nothing Records label, and of course, the long-awaited 1999 double album, The Fragile. All of this stuff has been well-documented in books and magazines and websites over the years, but when it comes to everything that happened before things turned platinum, well, now you know the truth. Technical production for this program is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. See you next time. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.